Lord, thank you for this day and uh, for the privilege of worship. And we pray now that you'd open our eyes to uh, your word, you teach us. Uh, we pray for ourselves as a country as we approach this uh, general election on Tuesday, that, Lord, you would give us um, wisdom in being good citizens of this country and making um, informed decisions. And, and give us what we don't deserve. Give us leaders who understand while the Proverbs teach that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, as we get started, let me, as we think about Orphan Sunday, let me give you one statistic that I, I hope and think should be burned into our mind, and that is the statistic 40%. 40% of all children born in America today are born to single-parent families. 40%. Uh, in 1965, it was 6 to 7%, something like that. Uh, every study done by the Manhattan Institute, the Stanford Institute, whatever, says that, that the number one support for economic prosperity, for citizenship, is just to be born into a family with a mom and a dad. So we should pray zealously for our country and that we would understand that. Okay. A former slave trader and profligate immoral man wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. The man's name was John Newton. In John chapter 3, verse 16, it says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through him might be saved. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. A man named Augustus Toplady said, wrote a poem and went like this, Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be for sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my tears forever flow, could my zeal no respite know. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. It's the work of Christ. He's the rock of ages, and we find our strength and comfort in him. Ephesians 2 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and it's nothing you can do. It is the work of God, not of works so that no man can ever boast. For by grace are you saved through faith, faith alone. Romans chapter 3, verse 21, Paul has been talking about the sinfulness of man, and then he says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God 
through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and they come short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. But now our righteousness from God. Another one of my favorite hymns before the throne of God above goes like this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, and we all have great guilt, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just was satisfied to look on him and pardon me. John Bunyan died in 1688. John Bunyan was a seller of pots and pans, came to faith in Christ, was told to quit preaching. He wouldn't quit preaching, so at the age of 32, he was put in prison, was there for 12 years, had four children. The oldest child, Mary, was blind. While he was in prison, John Bunyan wrote an incomparably great book entitled Pilgrim's Progress. Bunyan married when he was 20 after serving the, in the army. He was drafted at age 16. And he married a woman who was very poor. The only thing she brought to the marriage besides a few pots and pans were two books written by two men who talked about the duty of obeying the Lord and the duty of following the law and the duty of being obedient and the duty and the duty, but they never talked about grace. And so Bunyan read those. He wanted to reform his life. He tried to reform his life, started going to church. Uh, he started trying to do the right thing. He tried to quit his cursings and everything else, but he was miserable. And so several years down the road, he's, he's continuing to go to church and to listen to the think. And this is what he writes it says, one day I was walking into a field and the sentence fell upon my soul. The statement, your righteousness is in heaven with Christ. I saw the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand. And I realized that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me that I lacked righteousness because it was found in Christ. I also saw it was not my good frame of heart that made me right with God, nor my bad frame that made me worse, because Christ himself was my righteousness, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then he says this, now did my chains fall off. Indeed, I was loosed from my afflictions, and my temptations also fled away. And I went home rejoicing for the grace and love of God found in Christ alone. Alone. Martin Luther, who as a monk would beat himself and go on fast for weeks to earn God's favor, studied the Bible, and, and he said, I, I came to see that the just shall live by faith in the finished work of Christ. And I realized it wasn't my work, my labors, it was the work of Christ upon the cross, the one work of Christ upon the cross. And he wrote this, when I discovered that, I was born again by the Holy Spirit. And the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. So, grace, another hymn, my, my sin 
Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin not in part, but the whole was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Do you understand the glory of the grace of Christ? The glory of the cross. If someone were to say, name four or five passages that you would love to preach on if you only had four or five sermons, the passage we're going to look at today would be one of them. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 17. Paul was writing to the church at Ephesus. He has just laid out that the law was for people who were involved in all types of sin, all types of sin that didn't sound, that didn't square with the sound doctrine that's in accord with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which you've been entrusted. And then he says this, verse 12 to 17, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent or violent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is trumpeting the greatness of the grace that's found only in Christ. See, if, if, you, if you just study verses 8 through 11, that talks about the law is for this type of person, liars and perjurers and immoral people and so forth and so on. You, you can sit back to the church at Ephesus or in this church when you hear this and you can say, that, that, man, there, there's no hope. And yet verse 1 says Jesus Christ is our hope. And so in this passage, Paul tells us why there is hope in Christ. There's hope in Christ because he says, he says in verse 12, that he, he's, I, I thank him who has given me strength. He has judged me faithful or considered me faithful, and he's appointed me to his service. And so you back up and say, well, Paul, what were you like when God's grace discovered you? He says, let me tell you what I was like. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. And I was a violent man. I cursed the name of Christ. I belittled his name. I castigated his name. I persecuted his people unto death. And I was a bully. That's how God found me. See, listen, sometimes you get the impression that God is on a talent search in the world. And he goes throughout the world looking for people who have talent and whose hearts are inclined to seek him and people that are worthy of being found out. And then he, 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 he brings them on his team. Nothing could be further from the truth. Christ, the living God, is not a talent search expert. He is a person who raises people from the dead. The Bible says when you were dead in your transgressions and your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He's not a talent scout. He's a resurrection, life-giving king. It's, it's, it's like 
God comes to you and he says, sing, sing. We say, well, he says, we, 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 we can't sing. We, maybe we sing Johnny Cash songs. You know, Johnny Cash, I like his music, but about five notes. You know the range? My name is Sue, how do you do? Because you're mine, I walk the line. I mean, there's about four or five notes there, and you real sing real gravelly, and this, you can get by with it. But God says, no, I want you to sing Puccini ar arias. I want you to sing like Pavarotti. He says, I, I, I can't sing. He says, open your mouth. And he gives us the song. He gives us the grace. He, he, he gives us the strength. He finds us faithful. He points us to his service. See, that, that's why today's Adoption Sunday. We celebrate that. And, and that's why, see, ad adoption is glorious in the Bible. There's a man named John Murray who wrote a book entitled Redemption, Accomplished, and Applied. He's got one chapter in there on adoption that is worth the whole book, and it's a great book. But, but Murray says, and he's, he's right, he says, that, he says that adoption is even higher than justification. In justification, we are declared righteous in God's sight. Boom, you are forgiven. Not because of work, but by the work of Jesus. Boom, nothing you can do. You're, you're, you're forgiven, you're declared righteous. But Murray says adoption, not only our sins are forgiven, but we are embraced into the family. See that? Not only are sins forgiven, but you're adopted. You're, you're, you're embraced into the family. You become part of the family. And, 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 and so he says it's, it's, it's an even more glorious picture than, than even justification. That's why adoption is such a wonderful picture of people who are gone out and intentionally brought in. That's us. And so I, I look at this text, and I'll give you five principles from this text, which is a glorious text. The first is this. Grace is radically centered on the goodness of God. Again, it's, it's not a talent search. He's a life giver of those who are dead. He raises us from the dead. He doesn't look for worthy people and invite them to go to talent search night. He, he raises people from the dead. Paul says he gave me strength. He considered me faithful and he appointed me to his service. Number two, therefore, it is not about me. It is about the wonder of Christ. So you say to the Apostle Paul, Paul, Paul what, did you, what did you bring to the table? What, what did you bring to the table? He says, let me tell you what I brought to the table. Three things I'm going to mention. He said, I blasphemed God. I persecuted the church, and I was a bully, a violent man. He gives a little bit greater description in Acts chapter 22. He's defending his ministry. He says this, verse 3, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. And I've got a great education, a great heritage. I persecuted this way, or the church, to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. As the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness, for from them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and to put them in chains and bring them to Jerusalem to be punished. I persecuted them to death. I put chains on them, not only men, but women. 
And I hauled them in to be punished and beaten. That's what I did. And I gave hearty approval when the first martyr, Stephen, in Acts chapter 6, was stoned to death. So that's what Paul brought to the table. Number three, grace is the pursuit, is, is being freed from the pursuit of self-justification to the blessing of brokenness. He says in chapter 1, verse 15, he says, This thing is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Delivered from the pursuit of self-justification to the blessing of brokenness. This, this man it was kind of like the, the Pharisee's alter ego. Remember George Jetson on the treadmill, always going? The Pharisees that Paul was a strict member of were a group of people who just did and did and did and did and did and did and did to earn God's favor. But the gospel freed that, freed Paul from that. Paul said, those things I used to hold as precious and dear to me, I now consider nothing more than garbage, Philippians 3. And you look at the progression of, of Paul and his thinking. And in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians was written about 57 A.D., 57 A.D. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles. The least of the apostles. Well, that's, that's, a, that's still pretty strong company, you know. Five years later, he writes Ephesians. And in Ephesians 3, Paul says, I'm the very least of all of God's people, the saints. Three years later, he writes the book we're studying now, 1 Timothy, one year before his execution, where he says, I'm the foremost or the chief of all sinners. And, and the issue is, church, as you, as you see the glory of Christ and you get closer and closer, you see your unworthiness. You grow in humility. That's one thing I, 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 that concerns me about you guys and your successes, athletically, ac academically, economically, you organic. You range-free only meet. Uh, you're fit. Your kids are all successful, supposedly. Um, and we forget it's just grace. You know what you brought to the table? Nothing. Nothing. If you could have our sin written on our shoulder right here, what would it say? Adultery, liar, perjurer, jerk. Seriously. Blasphemer, persecutor, bully, nothing. See, my, so my, sometimes I make my, my, my chief, one of my colleagues, stand up here every Sunday and say, Don't forget grace. Don't forget the mercy of the cross. Don't think that you're something when you're not. I was thinking about this when I was, I was thinking about, thank God for turf toe. Stub your toe. In the quietness of the night, you're, you're, you remember that you're undone without Christ. Tur turf toe was something I, I heard about years ago. I used to be a, a, a devoted follower of the Dallas Cowboys. I'm not anymore. God delivered me from that. So, but years ago, when I was following the Cowboys, they had this great Super Bowl run. They had this running back named Emmitt Smith from the University of Florida, who was a great running back. And one year when they were heading to another Super Bowl, and they were just beating everybody really by, by three or four touchdowns a game. It was unbelievable. 
newsflash, Emmett Smith has turf toe, and he will miss two to five games at least, two games, probably five. Turf toe is, and I'm, I'm not a doctor, but turf toe is um, an inflation or an inflaming of the ligaments around the big toe. And you get it when you push off the wrong way or you stub your toe, especially on artificial turf. So it's called turf toe. But it's, you, you wouldn't know anybody has it. You, it's not just somebody, they go, ooh, that was, you just make a wrong turn and you have turf toe. And you, 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 the only way to cure it is you have to stay off your feet. You can't do anything. Every time you take a step, it hurts. And I thought, thank God for turf toe in this regard. I get turf toe frequently. You don't see it. It's not necessarily visible to people. But, but I have thoughts. I have inclinations. I have compulsions. And I say, if it weren't for the grace of God, I would be undone. Thank God for turf toe. Because the closer you get to grace, the more you see the reality of Christ. C.S. Lewis says it well. Mere Christianity says so many things well. He says that, he says, you know, a, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't look up to see God. And this raises a terrible question. How is it that people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride, being better than other people, they think, and they say they believe in God, but if, <laughs> says, I'm afraid it means this, they are worshiping an imaginary God. They're theoretically admit themselves to be nothing in the presence of this phantom God, but are really all the time imagining how he approves of them and thinks them far better than anybody else. So I suppose it was of those people Christ was thinking in Matthew 7 when he said that some would preach about him and cast out devils in his name only to be told at the end of the world that he had never known them. And any of us may, be, may at any moment be in this death trap. Luckily, we have a test. Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on not by God, but by the devil. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or see yourself as a small, dirty object it is better to forget about yourself altogether. Alexander Wythe was a great Scott preacher, died in 1921. Alexander Wythe said, uh, he preached in Edinburgh for decades and decades. And one Sunday he was preaching and he said, I have on this card the name of the most notorious sinner in Edinburgh. Got deathly quiet. He said, I'm going to tell you his name. And he leaned forward and he said, his name is Alexander Wythe himself. Because he knew his heart. See, the, the closer you get, so it's, it's, you're, you're freed up from self-justification to the blessing of brokenness. Number four, it's never too late. You're sitting there, maybe last week, you read and you went, oh, the church at Ephesus, and you hear verses 8 through 10 that the law is given for, and this catalog of people that are considered sinful, and you say, man, some of those, that, that, that could describe me, that could describe me, that could describe me. And then you, you say, but man, is, is it too late? It's never too late to come to faith in Christ. You think, man, if, if only the people sitting next to me worshiping today or the people in my family, if they only really knew my thoughts, my inclinations, or what I've done in the past, they would be scandalized by shame. Let me say this, they would not. 
I've heard some of the most difficult, horrendous, putrid things, but it's covered by grace. If we all could just say, this is where we've come from, this is what we've done, you'd be shocked. But that's why it's called grace. And that's why Paul says this. This is so beautiful. Verse 16, I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul said, look at me, a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man who, put, who hardly joined in the condemnation of, of men and women who worshiped Jesus. That's one thing they did wrong. And God forgave me. And God puts up with me. And did that so that I can be an example of perfect patience of the living God. We are all examples of the perfect patience of the living God. It's never too late. So I, I plead with you. you know, if, you're not, if you're not a Christ follower, you've never committed your way to Christ, you've, you've never understood it's only by the cross, I, I plead with you to run to the cross, to trust in Christ only for your salvation. And, and it's, it's never too late. Number five, this leads to worship. See, I just see, I see Paul writing this out, and he's just, he's, and he's just the perfect patience of God, the foremost of sinners. God considered me faithful. He gave me strength. He appointed me to his service. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man. And he's so overcome with emotion that he just writes, verse 17, a doxological praise of worship and gladness. He says, now to the king of, of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He just overcome. He's overcome with, with, the, with the greatness that's found only in Christ. And, and so you, you say, see, that's where worship is born. I want us to be worshipers. And so we, we sing these hymns to inflame our emotions, and we read and we think and we pray and say, God, inflame our emotions. And we, we study Scripture, not just do, but just to, let us worship. And so worship happens when you're astounded by greatness. My dad has one brother, one sister. He's the oldest. And his one brother had three children, two girls and a boy, all about my age, close. And um, all incredibly musically oriented. I mean, gifted musically. And here's my brother and me, didn't happen. Just did not happen. So something, it's got to be, it didn't happen. I mean, uh, one of my cousins um, went to Yale and got a master's in organ performance before he we went to medical school. Okay, why not? You know, that type of thing. Uh, another of my cousins uh, has sung operas in Chicago with symphonies and now teaches at University of in New York. The other is an uh, incredibly gifted flautist, which means she plays the flute. And they just love music and they know music and they really understand music and so I was with this flautist who's a nurse recently, and she's very excitable. She's 58, and she's just, she loves life. And, and her daughter is a flautist. They're both great musicians. And so she says, okay, guess what happened? I said, what? So you won't believe what happened. I said, what happened? You won't. I said, tell me. And she said, well, I work for a group of doctors, and two of them are on the, the board of the local symphony, and Yo-Yo Ma came to town. And they got me tickets on the fourth row where only the, the really the philanthropic members of the board sit, the big bucks. 
And we sat there. I can almost touch Yo-Yo Ma. Now, if you don't, Yo-Yo Ma is a cellist. He's pretty good. <laughs> He's a virtuoso. He is incredibly gifted. And uh, I said, what was it like? He said, this art was like. <laughs> I said, no, really. This so, I couldn't breathe. She did three or four. I couldn't breathe. The whole time I thought, so you had to hold your breath an hour and a half. That's a long time to hold your breath. But she said, I couldn't breathe because I was in the presence of greatness. I thought, multiply that times an infinite number, and you've got the character of the triune God who is unchanging. And how much more should I be astounded in his presence? And then when you're you're exposed to that which is superlative, you see your flaws and you worship. Personal story is very discouraging, but it's personal. I am a freshman at the Citadel. I'm playing football. And we've gone in early as football players. And we already spent four days marching before football practice starts. They shave our heads and make you walk in shoes that aren't broken in and and you're living in a place with no air condition. This is in the old core when it was really tough. So we're in, we're in unair-conditioned barracks, and and uh, and you're convinced all your friends going to Clemson or Chapel Hill have five girlfriends, and you're thinking, what have I done? I've destroyed my life. And so you're already at you're already lower than low. And two a day starts the next day when you're just going to be in this August sun in Charleston, and it's horrible. And so for a two-day start, we're wearing blue uniform, blue tops, blue gym shorts, black shoes with black socks. GQ are us. You know, it just <laughs> looks really, really good. And so the day before football starts, they say, everybody strip down except for your gym shorts and stand in line. And we're going to have a brief physical to make sure everything's still going well after four days. And so we do that. And you're standing there. And I'm standing there with all these freshman football players and standing next to me. There's a guy named Andrew Johnson. Andrew's just that much shorter than me, that much broader. And really, 10 years ago, a coach told me he was the greatest running back in the history of Citadel football. A great young man, civil engineering major. But I'm standing there. If you're a visual learner, I apologize. There's nothing special about me. Andrew had muscles where I didn't think muscles existed. I, I, I just I thought, good grief. I should be staying with the offensive linemen. They're kind of pudgy and, you know, but this guy, this guy. I think about that frequently. When you're in the presence of something that is higher than you, you see your flaws. Multiply that times a million. It's the character of God. So that's what Paul says. Look at this grace poured into my life undeserving. Well, I'm a blasphemer. I'm a persecutor. I'm a violent man. But, but God looked at me the foremost of all sinners. And in his perfect patience, he poured grace into my life. And then he breaks out now to the king, immortal, eternal, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. I, I want us to live there, church. R.C. Sproul wrote this. They said, He's writing about four guys I really like, Augustine, Luther, Calvin, and Jonathan Edwards. And he says, these men 
were all conquered and overwhelmed and spiritually intoxicated by their vision of the holiness and greatness of God. Their minds and imaginations were captured by the majesty of God the Father. Each of them possessed a profound affection for the sweetness and excellence of Christ. I love that, the sweetness and excellence of Christ. There was in each of them a singular and unswerving loyalty to Christ that spoke of a citizenship in heaven that was always more precious to them than the applause of men. I thought, I, I want that. that. That comes from the understanding of the greatness of the triune God who invaded history and died on the cross for our sins. God is not a talent scout. He gives life to corpses. That's grace. He's not a talent scout. He breathes life into dead people. And such were we. Amen. Well, let's pray. Lord, I, I ask that this grace that bowled over the Apostle Paul right a year before his death would be fresh and vital and life-giving in our spirits that you'd awaken us to impact our culture, awaken us to speak Christ to people, awaken us to live with a missionary impulse, awaken us to live as unto you. And I pray that we would live in a place of praise and worship and doxological joy where we say now to the King who is unchanging, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Lord, when we step back and we say, see where you have taken us and the fact that we came to the table and we brought nothing to the table. Nothing. Blasphemy. Persecution. Bulliness. Haughtiness. We brought, what was, we brought nothing to the table. You brought everything. And we thank you for your grace. And we pray that your kingdom would come and your will be done in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, church. God bless you.